Um, we've been doing a red letter study for uh, months and then it keeps getting broken up by all of the holidays and things that come up. And so last week was Father's Day, so we took a little break. But back on it now, so I want to get back on the, uh, on the red letter study, which for those of you who don't know, the red letters are those that in some um, more modern editions of the Bible, Jesus' words, direct quotes are printed in red ink to set them off from the rest of the text. And so we're just going through Jesus' words. What did he actually say? Because that's where we're going to get the closest, and especially for us, since we're putting it through an Aramaic context. We're trying to look at Jesus' actual words, but from the context, the language, the culture, the worldview of those who first heard them uttered to them, coming through the air in their native language, which was Aramaic. And that gives us a whole different perspective. 30 years ago, when I finally realized that Christianity had Hebrew roots and started studying this, I was blown away by the difference in the way that the language reads and what it actually means when you put it back in that um, context. So that's what we've been doing for the Red Letter Study. And uh, to get started today, um, how many of you have heard of an elevator speech? Y'all know what an elevator speech is? Yeah? So it would be the idea that if you got stuck, not even stuck in an elevator, if you were just riding an elevator with someone and they asked you what you do, or maybe they are like the president of the company and you want to really get across your brilliant idea to them, but you've only got as long as the doors are shut, you know, so maybe you have 30 seconds to define and to pitch your concept, your idea, what would you say? Are you able to get what it is that you really believe in, your concept, your idea, your job, mission, purpose, whatever it happens to be, down into two or three sentences that can be conveyed in about 30 seconds? That's the elevator speech. And when you are hearing an elevator speech, that's the time to really pay attention. Someone is giving you the, the whittled-down essentials of what it is that they believe. Jesus gives an elevator speech. And yes, we're, we're still back at uh, when he first comes out of the wilderness and he ends up in the Galilee and he goes to his hometown in Nazareth. We've had two other Sundays talking about this one scene, this one passage, because there's so much there. And if you think that I might be going overboard, um, I just had a friend tell me that their pastor, the chaplain, is doing five Sundays on just the prodigal son. So I'm not doing so bad. This is only three, all right? Just wanted to let you know. Let's take a read and just read it again so we're refreshed on, on what we've read the last two times that we've been at bat here. Luke 4, starting at verse 18. But we're going to read it this time from the Aramaic Peshitta version. So this is an English translation directly from the English. So it's going to read uh, slightly differently, but not that much. And he came to Nazrat. So that would be Nazareth uh, directly translated or transliterated, Nazrat where he had been raised, and he entered, as he was accustomed, into the assembly of the day of the Sabbath, and stood up to read, and was given to him the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, and opened Yeshua the scroll, and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and because of this he has anointed me to declare hope to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach to the captives release and to the blind sight and to free with forgiveness those who are oppressed 
and to preach the year acceptable of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it to the minister and went and sat down. And all of those in the assembly, their eyes were fixed upon him. So they're breathlessly waiting, a bated breath, waiting for Jesus to speak. So, yeah, we're still here in the synagogue, but there's more to mine here. There's more than I want to try to get out. Um, Jesus is defining his ministry. So, you know, picture this. He's come home again for the first time. We don't know how long he's been gone. The scriptures just tell us a, a symbolic 40 days and 40 nights. We don't know how long he's been gone from home. And most likely, even before he went into the wilderness experience, he moved his family from Nazareth to Capernaum. Because when he comes back, Capernaum is his home base. Capernaum is where his home is, where his family is. So he could have been gone from Nazareth for quite a long time. So when he comes back, the people are just astounded. Is this, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, aren't these his brothers and sisters? And, and they're just amazed at the change in him. And so Jesus is trying to define for them what he is now about. When he came out of the wilderness saying that he and his father were one, when he came out of the wilderness calling his father Abba, which is the term of intimate familiarity that children use for their fathers, he's changed. There's a difference about him. He's trying right now to define what that difference is, and he's using the Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 61, to do it. So if you take a look, he's there to declare hope to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, preach release to the captives, give sight to the blind, and free with forgiveness those who are oppressed, and preach the acceptable year of the Lord. All of this is this condensed look at what it is that he's doing. And again, in Matthew 11, he does it for John, his cousin, who is in prison, awaiting to be executed, who is now losing hope that Jesus is ever going to really come to the fore as the warrior king Messiah that he was expecting. And he sends his surrogates there to say, hey, are you the expected one? Which is the actual title that the Essenes used for this Messiah that they were waiting for, the expected one. Are you the expected one or should we wait for someone else? What does Jesus do? What does Jesus send back? Same elevator speech, same message, same quotations from Isaiah 61. You tell my cousin, you tell John that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised. He's telling him all of these things that are happening because this is the essence of what he's about. Now, every aspect of this little speech that he gives, every aspect of this reading of Isaiah has metaphorical meanings. And regardless of whether we're going to look at Jesus' miracles as being literally true, and we tend to look at it that way, why not? But there is a metaphorical, spiritual component overlaid on every one of them. When we're talking about hope to the poor, healing for the brokenhearted, release to the captive, sight to the blind, hearing for the deaf, walking for those who are paralyzed and lame. We're talking about, or Jesus is talking about, opening people up to a completely new world, opening their eyes, opening their ears, blowing past their fears that have paralyzed them in place for decades, since childhood, since whatever trauma put them into a specific thought and behavior pattern. 
to break through all that, to open them up to a new world, a world of fearless oneness, a world of fearless vulnerability, a world of fearless connection. This truth, this message, this mission, this purpose that Jesus is trying to get across here is about completely altering the way that we look at life, to change the very foundation the assumed principles by which we live, by which we understand life and meaning and purpose and identity. He's trying to open everyone up into this world. And he's calling this world kingdom. This is his name, his overarching structure for this new world that he's trying to get people into. But of course, there is a small catch. In order to enter this world, we have to leave the one that we're in. He says you can't have two masters, right? You're going to love one and despise the other. To leave, to enter Jesus' new world of kingdom is to leave the one that we're already in. Even to be able to see the world that Jesus is presenting is at least to loosen our grip on the world that we're in. And we've got to be ready to let go. This isn't something that everyone can do. In fact, most of us don't. When Jesus says that the, the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and few go that way, he's not talking about heaven and hell as we assume. He's talking about this right here. There's very few people who are willing and ready to loosen their grip, to let go of the world that they are so familiar with, even if it's painful, even if it's horrible because at least it's something that they understand and something that they think they may have some control over in favor of a world that is wild and woolly and blows like the wind and we have no control over whatsoever. You've got to be ready for that. Most people are not. We need to be ready to let go. We need to be ready to risk everything that we think we possess because kingdom cannot be transferred from one person to another. It can't be bestowed by anybody and not Jesus himself. It must be experienced. It must be lived out. Or it will never have any properties, any power to give us that fearlessness, to take us into a place where we're really set free. What he's talking about, of course, is a classic hero's journey, and we've talked about that several times. But this is that journey that takes us from a wounding, takes us into a new world and brings us full circle back to where we started, but knowing something more about it, having gifts, internal gifts that we can now give to our community that we couldn't do before. And so Jesus' whole mission and purpose and ministry is to call us to follow him on this journey. And the way he's doing that is by blowing up everything we think we know exploding the worldview that we have, posing all these paradoxes. And when you ask him a question, he just asks you another question or tells you a story. He's not going to let you just sit back into mental complacency, into the comfort of just trying to think an abstract thought or a concept that still gives you a safe distance. He's bringing you right into the experience because he knows that's the only way that this is going to take hold in our lives. He's trying to get us to loosen our grip on the world that we're holding on to by showing and modeling the shape of his journey, 
This journey always has the same shape. Whether you call it a hero's journey, whether you call it a rite of passage, whether you call it the Paschal Mystery, as Augustine did, about Jesus' journey that took him on a descent before the ascent, a stripping away, a leaving behind everything that he thought he was, to be able to assume a new identity, one with the Father, and come up the other side. It's the same shape, the reason it's called the Paschal Mystery, because he died, goes into the grave, and then comes up the other side. That is the shape of every one of our journeys, whether we know it or not, and Jesus is trying to show us that graphically. And so he takes this hero's journey, and he boils it down to the essentials. This is the elevator speech. Just one sentence, one particular thing, that if you can grasp that, you're on your way to being able to go where you need to go, where you want to go, to fulfill your purpose as a human. Remember the movie City Slickers? Ah, one of the funniest movies ever. Great message in it. In fact, we wanted to show it here, and then Marion and I watched it and remembered, yeah, there's a lot of pretty off-color jokes. Better not show it at church. However... There was one great part where uh, one of the, the main characters, the old gnarled trail boss, Curly was his name, ironically. He says, you know, you want to know the secret of life? And he's telling Billy Crystal, you know, the city slicker who comes in and, and doesn't know anything. And he's full of neurotic angst and all the things that we, you know, city dwellers are full of. Says, ah, you city people worry about a lot of stuff. You want to know what the secret of life is? Yeah, it's this. Your finger? No, one thing. What thing? Well, that's what you got to figure out. <laughs> one thing. And of course, that movie is about a hero's journey. Billy Crystal is on a hero's journey. And at the end of the movie, he knows what that one thing is. He's figured it out. And everything else didn't matter. In that moment, when he knew what that one thing was, and of course it was relationship, but when he knew what it was, nothing else mattered. You need to take this down to the essentials. What is the one thing? We've been studying Brother Lawrence. What does Brother Lawrence say is the one thing? Presence. He says the practice of presence is the spiritual life. There's your one sentence. One thing. Presence. One sentence, the practice of presence is the spiritual life. You practice that one thing, and everything else falls into place. Does Jesus have a one thing and a one sentence? You betcha. Of course he does. What does Jesus say? The one thing is. He calls it love. Love is the one thing. But guess what? Love is indistinguishable from presence. Can you have love without presence? Can you have true presence without the identification with the other that is love? No. They're saying the same thing. And what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, which is oneness and connection, and all else will be added. One thing, love. The experience of love, the living of love, here and now, is what Jesus calls kingdom. Seek first that, and everything else just falls into place. One thing, one sentence. All else will be added. So he says today, today, this scripture that he has just read, his elevator speech, is fulfilled in your ears. 
Don't you love that? This is fulfilled in your ears. My mission, my purpose is fulfilled in your ears. And of course, that's a Hebrew idiom. Kind of means like, well, you heard it here first. This is it. You're hearing it. It's all of it. It's being fulfilled in your hearing. It's fulfilled in your ears. Now, what is it that's being fulfilled? Maybe that's not really clear. Well, what's being fulfilled is that hope is being given to the poor, to those who feel so marginalized and completely invisible and ignored by everyone around them that there is nothing for them. There's nothing in this life for them. Hope for the poor today is fulfilled. Healing for the brokenhearted, release for the captives, sight for the blind, and freeness, freedom for the oppressed. All of that is fulfilled today in your ears. And of course, people are saying, no, it's not, right? But notice something really important here. Every one of these items on this checklist in Isaiah 61, everything in Jesus' elevator speech is about restoration. And this is really important to understand. It's about restoration. It's about something that we had and then we lost, or maybe better, just lost sight of, lost connection with, and then it's being restored. Remember when Dorothy Gale comes to the end of her hero's journey, right? After going to Oz and coming back to Kansas, what does she say? Next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I'm not going to look any further than my own backyard. Because if it's not there, I never really lost it to begin with. This is where Jesus is going. We never lost what we need in our lives. We never lost what Jesus is saying is now being fulfilled today but we lost sight of it. We lost connection with it. We lost our identification with it. And so this journey is really about remembering who we were then and who we still are now. And maybe a better way to put it is that the journey is about unforgetting. Maybe that has a little bit more edge to it than just remembering. In fact, do you know what the first word for the Eucharist was in the Greek? Anamnesis. And if you're thinking of amnesia, which means a forgetting, right? Anamnesis means to unforget. The Eucharist was about unforgetting who we are and re-establishing that connection. When we take into ourselves that bread, that wine, the actual essence and provision of our God. We are unforgetting who we are. We are remembering that we are children. We are royalty of this God. So this journey is about remembering. And this is important to distinguish because it's not about acquiring something new that we don't have and have never had in order to make ourselves whole it's about taking that descent and stripping away everything that has caused us to forget that we already had it at the beginning and it's still there now. I love the image of Michelangelo looking at a block of marble that he was commissioned to carve into something. Let's say it's a horse. And he just circles around the block and he imagines the horse standing inside the block as if it were frozen in a block of ice. And when he has imagined it completely, right down to the last vein and muscle, 
Then he says, the only thing left is to remove everything that's not the horse. Your perfect kingdom person is standing inside of you right now and always has been. But it's been covered over with all the accrued stuff that started in childhood from all the hurts and the trauma and all those things that we learned, all the things that we were taught. And we've forgotten who we are. Jesus is about just removing everything that is not that person so that that person can be free and come to the fore again. This is his elevator speech. This is what he's saying. And he's saying, today, this restoration is fulfilled in your ears. How is it fulfilled today? We don't feel that fulfillment. We're still just as neurotic as we were before he uttered those words. So what is he talking about? How is this fulfilled today? Now, the literal understanding, the normal understanding of those words would be that it was fulfilled in the day that Jesus spoke them 2,000 years ago, right? It was fulfilled, it was done once, and it's over and done now. It happened, it was an event in a specific place and time. It wasn't done, it wasn't fulfilled before that day, and it's been done and fulfilled ever since. That's the normal way that we look at this. But the words there are in what is known as a perfect passive construction. And that means that it's a past action with continuing effects in the present. So it's not just past perfect, right? It's perfect passive construction. Past perfect would mean it was over and done and not to be done again. But this is past action with continuing effects that move into the present. And so that gives us a couple of clues to work with here. The first clue is that it's not action that was completed just once, right? But it is being continued to complete always being completed somehow, even to this day. And the second clue is that today is this day, this night, this present day, now. Not today, 2,000 years ago when he said this, but that today is still this today because the actions are continuing in the present. I was talking to somebody and he brought up the idea of eternity and the way he used it prompted me to tell him, you know, eternity is always now. The eternity isn't a lot of time that goes out in the future someplace. Eternity is this moment always. That's the idea of eternity. And to the Jews, it's even more than that. It was, et it was eternity in the sense that this now, this moment is always new, always changing, always alive, always abundant, abundant, always producing something new. That's the idea of eternity. He kind of said, I'm going to have to think about that one for a while. But that's the idea here. This, this whole idea of nowness. Today is now. What was fulfilled that day when Jesus spoke those words is still being fulfilled this day because it's still and it's always today. And what Jesus is talking about is always fulfilled today, this day and now. And it can't be fulfilled anytime else because there is no anytime else. There is only this day, this moment. And because kingdom can't be transferred mind to mind, person to person, and must be experienced and lived out, the only time that that can happen, the only time that it can be experienced 
this oneness, this connection, this fearless vulnerability is today. It's right now. It's in real time. We talked about God only and always showing up at the corner of here and now. The only question is, are we at the corner of here and now to meet him while he's there? So this scripture of restoration is always and ever being fulfilled today, now, ringing in our ears. And I love that image because, you know, music only exists as long as the molecules of air or water are vibrating. And when that last vibration dies out, there is no more music. Music only exists as long as it's ringing in your ears. Kingdom only exists as long as it's ringing in your ears, as long as you are experiencing it right here and right now. So it's always and ever about today. I wanted to read you just a little couple paragraphs here from one scholar who I think did a really good job with this. He just calls it the importance of today. He says, Jesus' quote from Isaiah same passage that we just read, contains a kind of good news and bad news for us. He's talking about social and economic justice for the poor and oppressed. The good news, you can start now. You can start today. The bad news, you'll never finish. A commitment to justice for all people, in fact, for all of creation, is a never-ending struggle. Now, he's coming from a particular point of view that looks at Jesus' message, at least here, as social justice, as a macro type of phenomenon. But you know, if you've been around here long enough, we are talking about Jesus' message primarily being micro, primarily being interior. So even though he's talking about justice for the poor, hope for the poor, that metaphorical meaning that we are talking about, that spiritual meaning, to me, and hopefully to us, is primary. It's about the interior healing that takes place, the interior liberation that is taking place, being set free interiorly and then moving exteriorly. Now, what you do with your freedom once you've found it inside, interiorly, hopefully is going to spread into your community. But to do it the other way around is to invite all kinds of problems. When we go out into the community first, before we've had this interior freeing, can be a total egoic phenomenon. And it gets all mucked up and back to front. We see that happening over and over again with people trying to do good in the community, but they get lost in the process. But if we go the other way around, if we fight the interior revolution first, before we try to fight the outward one, now we can be a help to a problem and just not more part of the problem. So I just wanted to make that distinction because I, I believe it goes way deeper than just social justice. But he continues, today is an important word for Luke. Today, the word today is an important word for Luke, the writer of the gospel. It occurs 12 times in Luke and only nine times in the other three Gospels combined. All right? So Luke is all about today. It occurs in such familiar passages as today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus talking to the thief on the cross next to him, right? And twice in the Zacchaeus story, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. And today, salvation has come to this house. And in our text, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing or in your ears. For Luke, today is a moment of radical change. 
The shepherds come and see the Savior born in Bethlehem. They return rejoicing and praising God. They have been changed. After Jesus' visit with Zacchaeus, he is changed. He says, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. We can suppose that the eternal life of the thief on the cross was radically changed by Jesus' words. He has promised eternity in paradise, after all. In our gospel lesson, there is a change in the people who heard Jesus. At first, they're proud of their hometown boy. They boast to one another about knowing his parents. But the more Jesus talked about God's grace, even for non-Jews, another reaction came forth from the people. Luke tells us, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They try to kill Jesus by throwing him over a cliff. Today is a time of change brought through an encounter with Jesus. The change may involve attitude, rejoicing and praising God, or wanting to kill Jesus. The change may involve financial priorities, giving rather than getting. The change may involve finding comfort and hope in the midst of despair and death. However, we often avoid the changes of today. For Jesus' listeners and for us, the word today is terrifying. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. For us and for Jesus' first listeners, the word today is terrifying. On one hand, Jesus is not who they expected. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask. If today is the day of God's great salvation, what's this Jesus doing here and telling it to us? If today is the great day, where are all the miracles? If today is such an extraordinary day, why don't I see some extraordinary things happening? Jesus, the boy raised in that town by Mary and Joseph, simply spoke to the people. No flashing lights, no voices from heaven. Jesus saying a few words in the synagogue. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. Is Jesus coming in a few words? Yesterday can look glorious. Tomorrow can look glamorous, but today is so ordinary. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that what we do to it? We imagine all these amazing things, especially if you're into reincarnation. You imagine yourself a warrior princess or something great in the, in the past, you know? And if you're a Christian, you're imagining something great in the future for yourself with God, with a ministry, or maybe after your death. But today is just so ordinary. So many of us get into a routine, a rut. Today is just another day. Was Jesus just another hometown boy? Were his words just another teacher's words? The great saving event of God comes in common, ordinary ways. Sometimes we may even miss them. Today is an extraordinary day. God is with you today. Today is a terrifying word because it calls you into action now. I don't know what to do. You might simply complain. I don't want to make a decision now. You rationalize. The call of today shakes you out of your complacency. Just as the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus, so that same Spirit is upon each of us. You will make some wrong decisions. God promises to forgive those. And who knows how the Spirit will use your mistakes. You will make some right decisions, and you will know that the Spirit will use those. You'll become a better person, a better believer, and this world will be a better place for some people. 
We are to be radical community on earth. But it can only happen if we're acting today. Today demands a decision, a choice of us. And we're afraid to make it. Now Jesus is always calling us. His whole purpose is to get us to scamper after him and do what he's doing. Live as he lives. Love as he loves. Today. It's always today. Each today is a choice to follow. We don't just decide once and we're done. Contrary to you Calvinists out there, it's not once saved, always saved. It is a constant becoming, a continual becoming. It's a choice. Am I here and now and present with my God or not? Am I here and now and present with the people around me or not? Will I experience this moment as a moment of love, a moment of connection and presence or not, a moment of kingdom or not? We always decide today, eternally. Jesus is talking about today. And Jesus' pictures of kingdom are always emphasizing this. Take a look, and if you have your handout, and John will put them up on on the monitors, But Jesus is always talking about kingdom. Look at Luke 13, verse 18. So Jesus was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? You can hear him thinking out loud, right? He's talking about his own experience, the experience that he's had in his life up to that moment, and especially the experience he had in the wilderness as he was purging himself of all of his basic human drives. And he knows what he felt. He, know what he, ex- he knows what he experienced. He knows the closeness and the oneness that he has with his father now. And he calls it kingdom and he says, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? And at Mark 4.30, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? You see Jesus working these things out. This is his task. How can he express the inexpressible to these people in such a way that they start to get the first glimpse of a there there that they haven't considered, that they haven't been taught to believe, so that they can start to make the first steps into it? And then he starts in at Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like, and this is the beginning of all of them, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So he's trying to get these aspects of kingdom across that he's experienced. And the first one is it starts really small. It starts invisible. It's just showing up to tiny details, not the spectacular things that we imagine, but this tiny little seed invisible once it's in the ground, is just like us showing up to all those invisible moments, the ones that no one will ever see us doing, no one will ever pat us on the back or give us a brownie point or a medal, but to keep showing up because that's our will, that's our pleasure, that's our deepest desire. The kingdom of heaven is like that, and out of that comes this huge tree that supports life in ways that we never imagined. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. This tiny thing that gets hidden, that gets it's invisible, 
can't be contained. It just explodes. It grows. It fills up all the space in which it's contained. And then it goes beyond that. And it becomes who we actually are, if we will let it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And doesn't that sound kind of counterintuitive? Kind of taking a lot of extra steps. He found the treasure. He's already got the treasure. Why doesn't he walk away with the treasure? Why does he rehide the treasure and then go sell everything he has so he can buy the field? See, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us who are so linear. Quickest space between two spots, right? We just want to go in a straight line. Why all this circuitous route? Because it's the shape of the journey. Because the treasure can't be had or bestowed or transferred. It requires us to empty everything out that blocks us from the reality of that glimpse that we had so that then we can come into that possession. Or actually better, it possesses us. But we have to take the descent before we can take the ascent. We have to be willing to let go of everything we have. And that's a scary thing to do. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Same idea, but a little bit more intentional this time. The first man just finds the treasure in the field. Maybe he had one of those intense moments that we talked about in here. Those momentary glimpses that blows out all the distraction and brings us present. Here this man was looking for it, finds it, and does the same thing. But wait, there's more. Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Okay, now what does that sound like to us? Doesn't that sound like the heaven and hell that we were taught? Doesn't that sound like the sheep and the goats? One are going left and one are going right? I want to posit to you I want to suggest to you that we are not being identified with the fish. We are being identified here with the fishermen, the fisherwomen. We are the ones who are dragging through and catching the fish. We are the ones who are making decisions because we are the one who, ones who are living our lives through all these moments. And we have all of these thoughts and all this interactivity. What is the contemplative process but to step away from all the thoughts that distract us from this moment right now, that keep us from the realization of this oneness that we really have. That's what I think this is talking about. Still showing up to all the individual details of our lives, but doing it like a Brother Lawrence, where we are only focused on the good fish, we're only focused on those details that are right in front of us, that are part of our moment, that lock us in to the connection with our Abba. And all the rest we let go of. At Matthew 20, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And this goes on. He hires them early in the morning, hires them midday, and he hires them an hour before quitting time. And at the end, everybody gets paid the same. And of course, those who came early in the morning are incensed because they should have gotten more. But the point is that Jesus is making is that this is an experience that is accessible and available to all. It doesn't matter when you show up. Not in the day and not in your life. It is going to be the same experience because God doesn't change. God's love is degreeless. And so, of course, 
when we move into that moment, we will get paid the same. There is no other experience that we can have but the fullness of that connection. It's not a reward system that he's setting up here. It's just doing the work of prep, doing the work of showing up and being present. And then finally at Mark 4, verse 26, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. Because the kingdom is not about understanding. It's not about theology. It's not about doctrine. It's about getting up today and doing the, the work of the preparation. Just being present to the moment. And then what happens, happens while we're sleeping. Happens despite ourselves. It just is there. If we take all of these attempts by Jesus to try to convey the idea of what this experience is like, that is trying to give us a leg up so that we can start ourselves. If we go beyond these specific concepts, there is a universal attribute that he's also, I think, trying to get across. If you look at all of these images, they are all happening now. They are streaming in real time, if you will. There is nothing static, nothing passive about them. In the midst of this action, in the midst of this story, in the midst of this emotion, something is happening today. And if we allow ourselves to be caught up in it, to be blown about by the Spirit's motion, then this kingdom, this restoration, this liberation can happen. But it only happens today, today in our ears. There's no waiting for the future here. If you're waiting for something to happen, you're out of kingdom. Jesus is trying to bring us in, trying to show us it's all happening right now. And this is terrifying. I mean, it sounds good until you try to actually put it into practice. This terrifying immediacy of kingdom that is always happening now, always happening today, always demanding a choice to enter or not, because it's much more comfortable for us just to imagine that this truth is out there someplace. You know, like the X-Files, it's truth is out there someplace. It's distant from us. We have this, this comfort in that distance, whether it's just space or whether it's time, that we don't really have to act or risk anything right now. But that's not the case. That's not what Jesus is talking about. I was talking to someone that I was counseling, and he was talking about the fact that he had no real friends, that he mistrusts relationships, and for good reason. He's gotten burned a lot of times, starting with childhood. So he saw all relationships as temporary, and he always kept himself pretty well defended against them. He talked about being a results kind of guy, right? Always working toward goals that he had set up for himself. And that's kind of the way that he deflected and the way that he found meaning in life, even though the relationships were lagging. And so he saw life as a means to an end, means to an outcome, a means to happiness that was still out there to be fulfilled someday. And it's so easy for us in this case, but, but think about your own lives, because we've all been there. It's so easy to miss the connection between the means and the ends, to see them as being separate, separate in time, separate in space. But the means we use must match the ends we seek. And I know we've said that over and over, but, you know, we've got to keep repeating it. The means we use must match the ends we seek. Why? Because fulfillment is always today. The means we use today are the ends that we experience today. 
There is only today, after all. Tomorrow, an outcome, is just a thought in our heads. It doesn't exist. The means we use today are the ends that we experience today. Life, relationship, kingdom is all means. There's never any ends, really. Ends are just a cognitive, passive, or momentary result of an action. But we live our means today, every day. And the means we use are our ends. They are the content of our lives, if you think about it. All we do is do means every day as we work toward anything that we work toward or as we just live the relationships that we have in our lives. Those aren't ends. Those are means. Or they are means and ends at the very same time, all simultaneously. And if all of our focus is on the end, on the outcome, then we're never ever going to be present to the restoration that Jesus is talking about that is only possible today. At Luke 12, Jesus says the exact same thing. This rich man who says, hey, I've got all this stuff. I'm going to build bigger storehouses, bigger granaries, you know, bigger garages for more cars. And God comes to him and says, you fool, this very night, today, right? Your soul will be required of you. Who's going to use all this stuff that you're gathering up? It's all today. If we're not living it today, then it's not a part of our lives. To fulfill scripture in our ears today means that we need to see means and ends as the same. To practice the quality of the things that we say we want right now, today. No waiting. This is not an ends justifies the means sort of thing, that we could do something contrary to unity and to love in order to get to an end that we imagine is going to be good. This is practicing the quality of the things that we say we want right now because it is always today and never any other time. And I know that you're probably thinking about people in macro situations that have to either fight wars or do something subversive in order to do the best for the... We're not talking macro right now. We're talking micro. And in micro relationships, this is the principle that Jesus is trying to get across to us. I remember about 10 years ago, my mother died 10 years ago. And I remember our son, the one that just had the birthday with Kathy, I remember him uh, just expressing some regret that he didn't go with us to see Grandma more when she was still alive because, you know, Marion and I would go and sometimes we'd take the little one, but Sean would stay home. And, and so now she's gone and he expressed some regret that he didn't go see her more. And I remembered at that time also I was taking him to school every day and I could never get him to say word one to me. You know, he was tired. He was kind of sullen. You know, I was just dad. And uh, I remember thinking at the time, I wonder if he's ever going to regret not spending more time with me or connecting more with me the way he at least expressed it with his grandmother. And then, of course, I flashed back when my dad was taking me to work for about six months downtown Los Angeles. And I was tired because I was up all night doing whatever I was doing. And I was sullen. And he would try to start a conversation with me. And I just shut it down. I just wanted to be left alone. And then 20 years ago, when he had 
dementia so bad that he and mom couldn't live together and Marion and I moved in together with them, bought a house together so we could try to take care of him. He'd already lost the ability to speak and boy, I'll tell you, the stabbing regret that I felt remembering those times when I had the ability to have conversations with my dad and I'd give anything to have another one and it was too late. It's what's happening today. Relationships only exist today. Kingdom only exists today with others and with God because every today is demanding a choice. Will we enter in or not? And if our relationships, if our experience of life, if the quality of our lives are not what we want right now, what we expect, what are we choosing about it right now, today? Today, this moment is a choice. That's how you know you're in a moment or in a day. There's a choice available to you, right? To relate, to connect, to enter kingdom or not. And the means that we use to relate is all the healing and liberation and restoration that we're ever going to get. Today. Always today. And always ringing in our ears. Let's pray. Father, it's today. This is the day that you have made. We can rejoice and be glad in it, or we can be as miserable as we want. Our prayer this morning is that we will see today for what it really is more and more. Each tiny detail, regardless of the pressure that we might be under, regardless of what we might be feeling, the angst, the stress, the depression, that we would be able to break through that just enough to see the sun shining on leaves or our dog doing something silly that breaks us free to today and we can see that everything still is okay if we will enter into it and then take those steps more and more day by day to enter in and become more connected to you and everything and everyone. That's your elevator speech to us, Father. Help us to really immerse in it. Little by little, step by step, layer by layer, but keep it in the forefront of our mind. This is the day, today, the only one that will ever exist. And you are here, and you are alive, and you are working in our lives. All we have to do is respond. Thank you, Father, for that love and constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.